0: Welcome back to another segment of our Russia-Ukraine conflict episode, and in this one we're going to talk a little bit more, or a lot more really, about the events of the last eight years since the revolution, and then the persecution in the Donbass region during that time, and the various factors that go with that. And as usual, since this topic is very sensitive, we're going to give a few disclaimers, Like I said, I don't love continuously giving these. A lot of these things should be common sense, but I feel compelled to lest one misunderstand what we're trying to say here. Now, there's a difference between comparing things objectively and weighing them out in the scales versus justifying something. So, for example, we previously mentioned the hospital bombings in Afghanistan compared to what's happened in places like Mariupol, which we'll talk more about, and perhaps there's some different context to that, that if true has the potential to change, how you might view something like that. So when somebody's virtue signaling about something like this, and they're missing the log in their own eye, that's what we're pointing out. We're not saying that the complaint, quote unquote, isn't justified, but when you're doing it at the expense of something else, that's on an equal footing and how bad it is and pretending like it doesn't exist. That's the issue. So we want to make that very clear. So we're not condoning war or any of these things, but we're just measuring these things out the best we can on the same scales. So we're going to do another segment later on the fog of war and we'll deal with the tragedy of the whole situation, but there is also a reality to it that we have to deal with and then judge based upon that reality. Even if ideally, it would be great if none of this was going on at all. All right, caveat one out of the way. The next one, of course, is obvious. Just want to reiterate here. I have no problem if somebody thinks that Putin is not a good guy or something and is simply the lesser of two evils. I don't have a problem with somebody taking that position. I think it's a valid one and one I ponder myself and might be my outcome in all of this. However, there's certain things that are making me lean otherwise, but I'm not necessarily going to 100% confirm that. I'm still kind of seesawing back and forth with a lot of things. So that's my personal state in the matter here. And if certain things turn out to be true, it will probably seesaw it one way or the other. So that's where I'm coming from, or that's where I'm trying to come from. But if somebody thinks that perhaps he might be more weighing in the side of fighting against the New World Order for Christian morals and values, even if imperfectly and making some mistakes, I think you can make a case for that too. I think that those positions are both tenable and those types of people don't need to be at odds with each other. That might be a little Pollyannish, but that's my view or hope. However, I do think it's a big problem if people are going to say that Zelensky and his regime and NATO are the good guys in this situation or if there's a lesser of evils that somehow they're lesser in evil than the Russian side in this, especially with all the things that we're going to go through here and have been through with the neo-Nazis and the hypocrisies and blaming everyone else for the very crimes they're committing. I think that that's a much more difficult position to sustain and even more problematic saying that we must all support that and funnel everything we can into it in order to stand up for democracy. If people think both sides are just as bad equally, okay, that's fine. But to say that the Putin side is worse on this and far worse, like NBC is saying, where they're willing to support Nazis right now and whitewash them in order to justify this, I just don't really know what to say about that. I don't think a productive conversation can really happen. Maybe you've had one. I certainly have not. And I'd rather just avoid that. And if nothing else, hopefully this podcast will help other people uh, see the red flags in taking that position. So I'm trying to be as charitable and quote-unquote ecumenical as possible, but there are certain ceilings that get hit eventually. It's just the nature of the beast dividing everybody. All right, caveats done. Let's move on. And we're going to talk about the persecution in the Donbass area over the last eight years, That's the war that's been going on and didn't just start last month. And that's kind of the issue. When people aren't aware of this and all of the history, that's perhaps a big problem in taking them seriously, just being honest about it. So the two things that absolutely must be addressed and are fundamental to this, and if people are neglecting these, like I said, it's a big problem, is the neo-Nazi infiltration and the coup, and also the persecution and Donbass. Those are the two beating hearts of destroying the narrative, and people must at least address them if they're going to virtue signal about anything. And just dismissing them as Kremlin propaganda for even bringing them up is also another red flag. So the first thing I'd like to turn people's attention to, and again, this is all in the YouTube playlist. There's lots of videos there now. Most of the Uh, Relevant ones are in the middle to latter part of the playlist, and I will make better playlists and segment them later when I have time and I'm on a better computer, but for now, you can find everything there, or at least enough of what we're talking about. And one of them is a documentary made by a French independent journalist named Anne-Laure Bonnel. I'm sure I'm butchering that, but nevertheless, she traveled to the Donbass area and made this film reporting on all of the persecution that's been going on there for eight years. Now, this particular documentary, I think, is from 2015, so this has been going on for seven years since. Now, to be objective, there's a few things they have questions about with the documentary, but we'll talk about those a little later. So that is really the major beginning of this conflict, and the point is that Putin is saying that they're ending the conflict. This is the viewpoint of the Russian side. And this is what Putin said about why he invaded, that the two republics in Donbass, Donetsk and Luhansk, which are the ones being bombarded for seven or eight years by these Nazi battalions, which, again, we'll talk about. Well, these are the areas where the documentary was based upon, and they appealed to him for help to fight a Ukrainian army amassing in their territory in mid to late February. Now, to confirm a conflict here, a big one, there's an OSCE report, which is some international European security monitoring uh, group that uh, reports if there's any ceasefire violations activity. And apparently during this time, there was quite a bit of it. Now, here's the question. Was it the pro-Russian separatists who were causing the conflict and secretly gaining Russian arms and you know causing all these big explosions and they're the aggressor? Or was it a well financed NATO backed Ukrainian neo Nazi army that decided now's the time to go in here and perform the quote unquote final solution of the area? Or are they trying to bait Russia into attack, like many people say? But nonetheless, this issue is one of the fundamental pillars of determining whether Putin's invasion, quote unquote, is just if this claim is true. But also, we can decide which claim we think is more true or not based upon the history. That's going to be very important here. Now, this is just you and me deciding. I don't know what's going to happen on the world stage, but that's the whole point of the podcast to help you make a better, more informed decision. So there is our alpha and omega, the first parts and the last parts. Now we're going to talk about everything in between. So let's go back to the time of the Maidan revolution that we covered and give some additional coverage and context. And the documentary addresses particular aspects of this revolution, and they're rather disturbing, and it gives you video evidence, and it's very clear what is happening. And there's an insider who's also narrating what's happening, and it makes sense. It's matching up to what you see, at least as far as I can tell. But before we get there, let's talk about the presidential timeline here of Ukraine, and then we're going to see how it relates to the neo-Nazism under the Banner of Bandera. We touched upon him. We'll talk about him a little bit more in depth because he's a key figure in all of this. And we're also going to give a clarification. A lot of people say, "Well, these aren't neo-Nazis in the sense of Nazi Germany. They're, they're different. They have different goals. They have different ideas. Well, I say that that's really irrelevant to the fundamental parts of their rabid nationalism and then picking a particular enemy to deem as subhuman and inherently flawed. They might be substituting a couple small things here or there, but there's also a lot of common overlap. So this isn't apples and oranges. This is what kind of orange? Is it a naval orange or is it a Valencia orange or a blood orange? Or maybe it's in that family. Is it a tangerine, right? They're all pretty similar to each other. So regardless of arguing what kind of gnat is which here, this is what's happening. These neo-Nazis are deeming the enemies to be Russians and Semites as all being subhuman. Now we've talked about this, but just very important to reiterate that. And this is the tactics of demons, according to Catholic demonology. They all operate with the same fundamental tactics, but they manifest through unique regions and peoples and cultures. And you can see that in the opposite way. If they are manifesting a Catholic Christian culture, then a unique goodness comes out of them, right? It's not that complicated. If you put Ukrainian clothes on the Catholic body or the satanic body, there's going to be some similar manifestations in a broad sense, but all the fundamental things that are the most important ones are going to be diametrically opposed. That's the point we're trying to make. So with that in mind, let's talk about the timeline of presidents here. Now, this can be very confusing because their names are very similar, And we're just going to mention the four most important ones here, and then we'll start digging into the details of each. So there's the third president of Ukraine, Viktor Yukoshenko. He was president from 2005 to 2010. And then the fourth president is Viktor Yanukovych from 2010 to 2014. This is the one who's overthrown in a coup, and he's kind of the outlier in all of this. Then there's the fifth president, Petro Poroshenko, who was installed by NATO in the West, basically. And he was president from 2014 to 2019. And then we have the sixth president, Vladimir Zelensky, who was probably Koyla puppet president, and also perhaps controlled by neo-Nazis. And he's got a tug-of-war going on between the neo-Nazi threats and NATO and his masters in the West. And he is not in a very good position right now, it would seem. He's probably wishing he was back to dancing with the stars and doing creepy half-naked dance techno music videos. Now, of these three, we mentioned Yanukovych was the outlier. Why is that? Well, he's the only one that was really pro-Russian. Now, Zelensky kind of ran on a semi-pro-Russian stance or promising peace and unity, just like Biden did when he first got in, and we say that's worked out. But of course, that unity is, as long as everybody gets vaccinated, then we can all get along left or right. So the important thing is the actual synthesis and then the false dialectic that goes with it that we've talked about many times. The false peace or false unity that purges the things that divide by the sword in Christianity. That's the fundamental issue here. Also consider that Yanukovych, the one that was overthrown in the coup, was seen as democratically elected, just like President Trump in the first election, obviously there's some controversial things we've discussed about the second election, but setting this aside, the 2017 one, uh, that was a democratic election, but of course it was accused of having Russian interference and then the left wanted all these election reforms and everything under the sun to make sure that elections were safe and secure, but then they didn't worry about any of that once the 2020 quote unquote coup happened the stop the steal rallies and all that stuff. And of course, Yanukovych was accused of being a puppet of Moscow. It was Russian interference, right? This is exactly what happened to President Trump. Obviously, there's a different set of circumstances, but it's the same fundamental thing. Russia, man, bad, fraudulent election, not real democracy, (laughs) But apparently the coup that we're going to talk more about, that's real democracy, especially when you have fascist Nazis running it with the West giving the media impression that it's this progressive paradise. So let's talk a little bit about Yukoshenko, the president from 2005 to 2010, the first one we're going to talk about. The important thing is to note that he decided to make Stefan Bandera, that Ukrainian Nazi collaborator, into a national hero. Now, here's the irony. Apparently, Mr. Yukashenko also made the claim that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was basically the tactics of the Moscow Junta and Russian fascist regime. So this is the heart of the irony. He made a Ukrainian genocidal Nazi collaborator into a hero, and he's going to accuse Russia for the recent invasion within the last month of being a fascist regime and taking a country by force. But of course, the 2014 coup was not taking a country by force at all. No, of course not. So you can see the hypocrisy here, the utter hypocrisy, and it's just going to continue over and over and over again. So the question we want to ask here is, was the neo-Nazi presence already kind of being felt in Ukraine? Was this guy pressured to make Bandera a hero? Was he intimidated? Or is this some sort of organic thing and then the U.S. is going to capitalize off of it with the coup? I don't know. Things to ask. But from what I do understand is most people didn't have an anti-Russian sentiment during this time. Maybe I'm wrong. These are just things I'm hearing. I didn't live in Ukraine during this time. I'm just going with what I got. But if that is true, we're going to see just how quickly that was manufactured. And it really seemed to happen right after this 2014 coup. What a coincidence. Now, this is really important to bear in mind. When this Bandera worship was declared by this president uh, between 2005 and 2010, I don't know what year he did this, but all the liberal West denounced this, the United Nations denounced this, and even Russia denounced this, right? So here's the irony. Out of all those groups, the only one still denouncing Bandera is Russia. For some reason, the liberal West has just whitewashed the whole thing and act like neo-Nazis don't exist and that... Putin's crazy because Zelensky's Jewish, and there couldn't possibly be neo-Nazis in Ukraine, even though you're going to find all these documentaries made by the West that had been warning about this. So that all goes out the window when it comes to hating Russia, apparently, and that's what's so suspicious about this. Russia is the only one that's actually stayed consistent on that issue and true to their word. Continuing, another important thing for church-state relations. Yukoshenko, as far as I could tell, was a practicing member of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Now, this underwent a lot of restructuring in the past few years and that whole schism, and you better believe that all this stuff is involved in that. Now, apparently in 2021, he met with Patriarch Bartholomew, who's from Constantinople, which excommunicated Moscow and set up this independent Ukrainian church, so-called. And Yukoshenko is thanking him for doing this. Now, we're going to find out later in particular Orthodox articles that there are neo-Nazi icons being integrated into Catholic Christian icons. And there's two particular bishops of this church that have not been denounced by Patriarch Bartholomew and have been legitimized by him, as far as I understand. And instead of the imagery of like the woman crushing the serpent or St. George crushing the serpent, I think that's the figure They're crushing the double-headed ego, which is Byzantium, ironically, but with Moscow clothing. So they're using holy icons for Russia phobia and attacking Russia and Nazi propaganda. I mean, how, quote-unquote, blasphemous can you get? But apparently that's not really a big deal, and they haven't been excommunicated. So that's a whole other layer of this stinking onion We'll talk about that a little bit more, and I I don't have all of the information on that. It's just something that's integrated, and I only have so many hours in the day to look into it, but I saw the images of it, and it was very disturbing. Unless they're faked and it's Kremlin propaganda. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Continuing, Yukoshenko claimed that the pro-Russian groups tried to poison him, much like Alexei Navalny accused Putin of poisoning him. And he was recently found guilty on accounts of fraud. Now, I looked more into this, and I guess the issue is that Russia is the one who has found him guilty, and so CNN and all these people are reporting on it, but of course, they're going to say these are trumped up charges. You can decide what you like, but again, this guy was the political muse of the Kitty Riot Band, who is the radical LGBT feminist that Putin jailed and are the liberal darlings of the West. And of course, all of this is violating constitutional rights, according to the West. And Russia is this autocratic system. It's a fake democracy. But Ukraine is this bastion of freedom, of course. Now, we're not saying Russian nationalism doesn't have any issues or isn't a problem. I don't know. I don't live there. But the point is, is Ukrainian Nazi nationalism under the guise of LGBT paradise and democracy a complete contradiction and a complete farce, and also incredibly dangerous with what's been going on in Donbass and everything happening now, and that's part of the reason for Russia being where it is now doing what it's doing. And continuing, wrapping up a few more points on Mr. Yukashenko. Apparently his wife is a Ukrainian-American who's tied to the University of Chicago, which of course is a Rockefeller institution, and she's integrated into all of this. And of course, Yukoshenko was advocating for moving towards a NATO alliance and basically running his platform on a mixture of nationalism, which will soon turn out to be full on Nazi nationalism, and NATO mixed in with that, which is exactly what this has all turned into. Now, there's something more about this that's integrated with the Orange Revolution. I don't know much about it. I don't have time to look into it. It's more Putin man, bad, orchestrating bad things. And I don't know. You'd have to look into that on your own time. Maybe it's true. But given the track record of all these things, I might be a little suspect of the Western narratives on the situation. All right, moving on. Let's talk about the fourth president, Yanukovych, the one who is more pro-Russian and was overthrown in this coup. Let's call it what it is. Now, apparently he is also part of the Orthodox Church, so I don't know what kind of internal battles have been going on in Ukrainian Orthodoxy, and like we said, the Moscow-Constantinople schism and all that kind of stuff, but that's probably involved in this on some level. But what's more important is, well, basically four important points. The first one, and really the most important one, he decided to take down the Bandera statue and Bandera worship. Now, some people say that these things have not been let back up or let into law since then. I don't know about the technicalities of that, but I certainly have seen uh, photographs of Bandera worship and you know people mentioning streets named after him and all this stuff. So it's not like it just went away, even if the legalities aren't what they were before he overthrew them. Again, something you'd have to look into on your own. But the point is... This guy was denouncing it and taking away the neo Nazi worship. So, shouldn't we be cheering him on? Well, no. Apparently, his Russia friendly policies trump all of this, no pun intended. And he was elected by Russian collusion, an undemocratic process, and he's just a a tool of Moscow, a tool of the Kremlin, of course. So, you can be a leader purging neo Nazism from your country, and for some reason, the West that's not good enough for them, even though they think that's the worst threat of all time. And there's a Nazi hiding under every corner here in America, and they're all Trump supporters. Well, when somebody actually kicks out neo-Nazism and suppresses it, well, because he's tied to Russia, that just can't be real or we don't care. You see the crazy hypocrisy. I mean, it just never ends. It just gets deeper and deeper into this abyss of hypocrisy. Point two, here's another Russian sin where he wanted to get discounted Russian gas instead. So it would have made gas cheaper for his people. Wouldn't that be like a real nationalist making prices of things easier on the people? And remember, we reported in Zelensky's regime that fuel costs are through the roof for all the people of Ukraine. Um, But it was imported from Crimea, which Russians had a little bit of an interest. There's a little battle. I'm not an expert on the whole issue over Crimea. We'll talk a little bit about that and some alternative takes in a second. But, He was basically seen as a betrayer of Ukrainian nationalism, which is incredibly ironic. So which one is it? It's Ukrainian nationalism. This guy's betraying it. But then later it turns into a bastion of democracy under Zelensky, and that's great. So it's like you're trying to capitulate to two audiences, but one side is the American audience that's brainwashed under LGBT democracy. So if you can paint Ukraine as being that, that suffices to support it from... The brainwashed people in america sorry to say and then the ukrainian nationalist people that love that stuff in ukraine can be satisfied because they don't really care as long as they get weapons from nato and go wage a war on their quote-unquote enemy and we're going to find out exactly how much that enemy has been shaped through these nazi training camps we mentioned them but we're going to go a little bit deeper into them shortly now here's the other irony to put it nicely of ukrainian nationalism Well, what good is Ukrainian nationalism if everything you're getting is from the West and your weapons are from there and your foreign policy is from there and all this stuff? How sovereign are you if you're just a vassal state of the West, just like Putin said they didn't want to be and they knew was encroaching upon them? Now, apparently, this opting to buy oil or gas, I should say, from Russia, well, this was I guess, rejecting the IMF's plan for the country. So this is a double whammy. Helping Russia and giving a middle finger, I guess, to the IMF. And we know that when the IMF gets the middle finger, well, revolutions tend to happen in countries. Funny how that works. Third important point. Of course, Yanukovych is accused of, quote-unquote, massive corruption and cronyism. Another irony is that the exact same thing that all these other presidents actually are, and fomenting. And I'm not saying that this Yanukovych guy was amazing or not. I don't know. Maybe he was a decent president. Maybe he wasn't great, but look at it in comparison with these other groups. So basically everything that happened to Trump, right? Oh, he's you know just some capitalist big wig and supporting the evil capitalists or whatever. I mean, that's kind of what the left thinks about him. And Trump has all this corruption. He's put his companies in debt. He's evading taxes, right? Like the Bidens and all these people aren't evading taxes. So no more to say about that. Now, number four, this is an important point. He said that he gave no orders to fire on the protesters at Maidan, even though it's been reported that they were fired upon. So if this is true, this also corroborates with the idea that the Nazis or the new neo-nationalist Ukrainian Nazis, whatever you want to call them, the Azov Brigade, that they were performing a false flag firing, and it was being blamed on the government. And if you listen to particular independent journalists like Ava Bartlett, who did a lot of work in Syria, these are the same tactics that NATO was using to try to overthrow Assad. And even though Trump is kind of implicated or involved in that, I think we might want to wonder just how much he knew, and he was still being attacked for not going harder than he did. And then he was also involved in slowing down the process of uh, the plan for Ukraine to go take out Russia, as we've talked about and we'll get more into the thick of as we go through this. So to wrap up with Yanukovych and him being overthrown, apparently after this happened, he referred to the revolution as having dark powers behind it and that the ultranationalists and neo-fascists took over with support from Western powers And he was telling people, quote, have you become blind? Have you forgotten what fascism is? And those sound like pretty sane words to me. But apparently they have forgotten. And he also said that Poroshenko's handling of the unrest in eastern Ukraine, the the area where Putin just recently invaded. Well, this was actually just criminal orders to kill people by Poroshenko. Now, this is going to be the controversy of the beginning of that documentary and some of his statements that we'll talk about in a second. But he said that what Poroshenko did in eastern Ukraine to these Russian separatists only caused anger and crying mothers who have to watch their children die. And if you watch that documentary, boy, it certainly corroborates with those statements. But again, that's all Kremlin propaganda. So speaking of Poroshenko, the fifth president of Ukraine, the one who took over after the coup, He was president again from 2014 to 2019. And then Zelensky, of course, takes over. Well, all of a sudden, the pro-NATO stuff comes right back, along with the Bandera worship. And Poroshenko basically says that Russian aggression, he's blaming all the aggression on the Russians here after this coup, that, well, this means that Ukraine deserves greater NATO expansion. So again, think about this. After a NATO-backed coup to take over the country where actual peaceful protesting Russians, again, I'm not saying all the Russians were peaceful, but there was a particular group that was burned alive in a building. And that's part of this documentary. We're going to talk a little bit more about that shortly. Well, apparently some separatists took exception to this coup and they decided to arm themselves. Is that really so crazy, especially considering what they saw? But apparently this is Russian aggression. It's not NATO aggression performing a coup. So this whole thing has been blamed on these Russian separatists. They're the terrorists. And this is a call to expand NATO in Ukraine. Do you see the ridiculousness of this hypocrisy? I mean, it's just incredibly demonic. That's all you can say about it. It's just beyond what's even comprehensible for the rational mind. There must be, as uh, Yanukovych said, dark powers behind all of this. Now, you can say there's dark powers behind the Kremlin and Putin if you'd like, but it seems like these darker powers of the West have an obsession with trying to blame everything they do on Russia, and I find that very strange. So fast forward, of course, to the year 2017 when Trump takes office. But of course, this was the year of offense, according to Lindsey Graham and John McCain, And we're going to talk about John McCain's presence at the coup in 2014, which is something that's a new revelation for me since our last segments, but of course, not surprising. So anyways, 2017, the year of offense against Russia and Putin, according to John McCain and Lindsey Graham, talking to all the troops that have been much more Nazified since uh, three years prior. And part of this campaign of offense, according to NATO, or at least Lindsey Graham and John McCain, Well, apparently this is all part of saying that Russia has to stop the violence in Ukraine. So the year of offense for NATO and Ukraine, well, this is because Russia has to stop violence in Ukraine. (laughs) Unbelievable. And these are all newspaper articles I'm sourcing from. Again, this will all be in the PDF file when I get those links together. And again, 90% of these links are all Western media establishment sources that pretend like these stories they did don't even exist anymore. Now, apparently in one of these articles, they're whining about the Trump administration sending mixed signals on the Ukraine issue and saying that if Trump withdrew support for the sanctions against Russia, that other European allies might uh, do the same. So apparently Trump influenced a lot of other nations and what they're going to do, because if he's running the big bad United States and they see that they're not going to sanction them... Why would a smaller nation like Italy or whatever doing it? I think that was one of the ones they were worried about. Now, I don't know exactly what happened in all of this, but the point is, Trump, as imperfect as he is, and as silly as he may seem, he seems to be a big thorn in the side of all of these plans. And so again, this is this is this God's irony. A reality TV star who's famous for saying, you're fired. Like this dude is running the country and he's putting... At least the breaks on so many of these plans that have been developing for decades, some might even say all the way back to the 1990s in the Bush administration, I've heard this claim, I don't know, but you have that going on. Then you have an actual actor in Zelensky who's dancing with the stars and he's being seen or portrayed as some amazing patriot war hero politician and you don't know whether to laugh or cry. I mean, the whole situation right now is horrible, but I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. Continuing, apparently, um, Mr. Poroshenko was using the Holodomor genocide as a virtue signaling opportunity, much like how everybody says that the Nazis' genocide is equivalent to something that they don't like, right? Um, Some people even said Trump is worse than Hitler, which is an insane comment. But the point is, there's a dialectic here, like we talked about. There's the Bolsheviks or the Soviets, and then the Nazis, And so in these two regimes of Stalin and Hitler, you have these two sides of genocide, right? The Holodomor starvings and killings in Ukraine, and then the Nazis on the other side with the Jews and various other groups. So what Poroshenko is appealing to here is to say that the Holodomor genocide is much, much worse than the Nazi one. And so therefore, that's okay to side with Nazis because they were fighting this So you see how this is Satan casting out Satan and they're targeting the same thing, right? The, the basically SJW Bolshevik style West is collaborating with a neo-Nazi regime in Ukraine and they're both teaming up to take out Putin, who is resurrecting Christianity. Again, if you want to think it's a big fake Christianity, go ahead. But the point is, it's very strange how those two sides of that classic dialectic, but that targeted the Catholic Church way back then and tried to take it out when in this whole destruction that devoured itself, you know, again, Satan's Ouroboros, devouring everything along with Christendom with it. Well, that's the same thing that you could plug into the quote unquote matrix here and see the same sorts of things playing out, again with some different clothing, but the same kinds of bodies. And this is why I would have more reservations about calling Putin's regime a fake Christianity because it seems like the dragon, if you will, doesn't view it that way, and historically the way he's attacked Christianity in the same manner is happening again, so that's why I would reserve my judgment until further development of all the situation going on now. So continuing, this is the context of why Bandera is deemed a hero, because there were formerly communist-named streets in this area And now, instead of having those remain, they want to get rid of the communist stuff, but instead replace it with the Nazi Bandera banner rather than Christianity, which should be what it's really replaced with, right? And this is why Putin is very interesting in all this. He is very against communism. We've seen this in all of his speeches and his actions, and he wants to get rid of communist monuments. But instead of putting up Nazi ones... He wants to put up St. Vladimir the Great or uh, Russian Orthodox icons and just general Christian symbols, right? He doesn't want to put up Nazi iconography because he's trying to denazify Ukraine. At least that's his claim. You can think he's lying or whatever it is or just being political. Believe what you'd like, but it does fit this same schema of what we've been talking about historically, and I don't think we should be so quick to call Putin a crypto-communist here where he's doing everything against communism and then calling him a Nazi or running his regime like Hitler where he's taking out Nazis in Ukraine. I just, it, none of that makes sense to me. I don't know, maybe it makes sense to you. Maybe I'm just taking crazy pills, not to quote Zoolander here, but you get the point. So let's move on and talk a little bit more about this Stefan Bandera character. I don't know everything about him, but I'll highlight the broad strokes of what i found and what I think is the most important. So, apparently, in the original Nazi party, once they came to power, apparently there were kind of two camps. One were the Germanic state nationalist types, and then there were the brown shirt kind of lower level thug types, I guess. Now, these are some things we talked about in the Nazism-Zionism episode in terms of centralizing and taking over police stations because there was more violence towards Jews, which again is an unknown thing. But until more bad things broke out, the Nazis thought violence against Jews was counterproductive. Now, this is all documented in that book we talked about, as strange as that might sound. But this makes sense in this context, where there was this thing called the Long Knives Night, where Hitler purged this other faction, I believe in 1934. And this is the Ukrainian brown shirt faction that was apparently too radical for Hitler. And this is the group that Bandera is tied to. So really think about this. Even the actual Nazis that everybody in the West blames everyone else of being for people they don't like and think is the worst evil of all evil. Well, apparently the Bandera Nazi types were too radical even for them. So now the liberals and the leftist establishment or whatever you want to call it, they are propping up a regime that is promoting a Nazi ideology that's worse than the original Nazis or Hitler it's the worst version of it. So I I hope you can see how crazy that is. Now, in terms of how these neo-modern Banderites act, as opposed to the original ones, I don't know. You can compare and contrast if you like on your own time. But apparently, Bandera, in his being too crazy for the Nazis, he was actually put into a concentration camp. But when Germany was losing the war, they let him out to go fight the Soviets. And so... This is why he's seen as a hero for fighting the Soviets, and the Soviet side hates him, and I guess assassinated him later. So he actually lived on many years past World War II. So apparently Bandera and his Nazi collaborators, I guess once he was released from the concentration camps, committed genocide in Ukraine and corroborated with Hitler's army. Now everybody can argue the reasons why and the differences or whatever. But he's painted as a hero by these modern Ukrainian nationalists, and streets and statues are named after him or or built for him. And so all these crimes were committed against Jews, Poles, and Russians, and these are the elements that exist in Ukraine and are embedded into their military and even political system far more so than anywhere else in the world. The highest concentration and the most integrated this is is in Ukraine, and that's what the United States is promoting right now, and that's what all the people with their Ukraine uh, thumbnails and avatars or whatever are all supporting this. It's just absolutely insane. At least this is what I've gathered about them, so you can do more research into them if you'd like, and particularly Bandera and whatever he and his group did specifically into WHO, but we're going to fast forward and go to mainstream Western sources, The Guardian and Time magazine about as part of the establishment as you can get. And they did many documentaries on these different groups. And these videos are in the playlist, so please watch them, I'm gonna give you the title. So first off, and you'll see why it's appropriate to go to this video first, The Guardian did a segment and it's called Ukraine's Far-Right Children's Camp And this was made, I believe, in 2018 or around that time. So this is like four years ago now, at least. Or that's when it was uploaded on the Guardian's YouTube channel. Now, this one is really creepy because there's kids involved. So, these poor kids. Just think about this. Remember the summer camp that you used to go to if you went to summer camp? Where you would roast marshmallows and play, I don't know, water balloon games and go swimming and have fun, right? Well, imagine the scene of those camps, right? You got cabins and all that stuff. looks like a regular summer camp, but instead you went there as like a teenager or whatever. And you instead were being trained for war to fight the quote unquote enemy for mother Ukraine. And you were learning how to drag dead bodies from the battlefields and how to cover from grenade fire. So you don't get blown up and you're learning how to fire machine guns or getting ready to do combat with guns and girls are having my thai against each other and stuff and a whole host of other things. And they even mentioned possible knife fighting in it. And more importantly, this is not just boys. This is also girls in this camp and you can see them all lining up with the drill sergeant guy yelling out glory to Ukraine, death to the enemy and stuff like this. These people are literally saying death to the enemy and they're like teenagers and young teenagers And one girl and her legs has white pride tattooed on it. White on one leg, pride on the other one. And they're even admitting this is all tied to the Azov Brigade. And since the 2014 coup, it's turning into a military group that's turning into a political party, which is exactly what we researched before. It was mixed in politics and the military. They're really not shy about it. They show the marches and everything going on in the video. And what's so creepy about it, as if that weren't creepy enough. It's just seeing the innocence of these kids and what ends up being lost or will end up being lost. Because if you listen to them, a lot of them talk in that kind of, you know, stereotypical, friendly Eastern European or German type accent, you know, like, hello, I am Hans, how are you? You know, and it's just kind of that endearing demeanor that a lot of people like that have. And They just all seem like these very polite, nice Eastern European people. It's really sad. And even in the documentary, they're like, oh, well, the neo-Nazi stuff really isn't present. Like, we're not training them to be Nazis, really. But does that kick into higher gear when they get older, which will be the topic of our next documentary? So this is basically like a Hitler youth group, but this is one that is under the auspices of NATO they must know this is going on and they're allowing it to happen. So it's like they're using this Ukrainian nationalism to allow these little mini Nazi camps to form. And eventually, once they all grow up to be big, bad Nazis, then the time is to go and take out Russia and these separatists and Donbass. It's really twisted. I mean, this is how it all developed. It's really crazy. Meanwhile, The Western powers are blaming everyone else for being a Nazi whenever you criticize them or you support Donald Trump. Now, I don't know if Trump knew about what was going on specifically here or not. He had a lot of things going on. Uh, You can debate that if you'd like. But I have a feeling that this was probably kept under the radar from the intelligence reports given to him, or at least greatly diminished you can decide for yourself. But let's move on to the Time Magazine segment. And this one is called Inside a White Supremacist Militia in Ukraine. And this was made just about a year ago. Looks like 2021. And now we're starting to see all of this come to fruition and grow. And how quickly we forget where just a year ago, This white supremacist militia in Ukraine was growing in this big threat, being trained to fight the quote-unquote enemy, which is really just targeting the Donbass area, which is what Putin is saying was happening and was going to be unleashed upon that area. And that's why he intervened because they appeal for help, whether you believe them or not. They were training just for this purpose, as we'll see. But how quickly we forget this when we want to destroy Russia, right? So, There's some 2019 footage in this documentary of this giant recruitment event for far-right groups from around the world. Now, here's what's so strange about this. All these alt-right, far-right, neo-Nazi type groups or sympathizers around the world, especially these younger kids, well, they realize that this is all happening in Ukraine. Their Aryan dream is being realized in Ukraine. So they come from around the world, ironically, to be Ukrainian nationalists, even though they're not coming from Ukraine. Again, go figure. But the point is, they have all these fighting competitions and stuff like that. Now, I've seen some of these online in Eastern Europe. I don't know if these are specifically them, but it's kind of like street beefs, but in these countries. They probably have some in Russia, but I'm not saying that the Russian ones are Nazis, but I'm just saying you have a bunch of, you know, dudes fighting each other in like mma style stuff right now on its own some people might criticize that but not a big deal people refereeing each other and having little matches but are they matches with all of this recruitment for neo-nazi regimes that's kind of the big difference here that's where street beefs is a little bit different than these ones and what's also interesting in this footage they show a guy giving a little rallying speech And he's bashing LGBT tolerance, and he's basically uh, promoting all this anti-LGBT stuff, but it's obviously the more radical version of it, right? Violence against LGBT people and stuff like that, I'm sure, is all part of the sentiments here. Now, they didn't show you a clip saying anything specific about violence, but when they're all beating each other and training to take out the enemy, you can put two and two together. Now, compare and contrast this with Vladimir Putin's comments about LGBT issues, Uh, I believe it's from a BBC interview or BBC News, and they were questioning him about Russia hosting some kind of Olympics. And the whole point is that they're asking him about Russia's anti-LGBT laws because there might be certain athletes who have different sexual orientations or whatever it might be, right? So they're saying, Putin, what about them? Should they be in fear for their life? Stuff like that. So Putin answers, and it's a very interesting answer. He basically says that, you know, a third of the world actually believes that being gay is a crime. And he says that some countries, there's like seven countries, have a death penalty for this. They're probably Islamic. He says, but not in Russia. He says that our laws are only against gay propaganda and pedophilia propaganda, which of course we can probably all agree is a good thing, at least the latter. And then he mentions how some European countries are even debating whether pedophilia should be legalized and trying to decriminalize it. And he says, hey, they can do what they want, but that's not what Russia wants. So we don't want any part of that global homo culture, right? But we don't want to criminalize uh, sexual orientation and persecute gay people in any other sense. We just don't want the propaganda. That's what he's saying. And so he says, this has nothing to do with individuals or sexual orientation, and it does not affect those coming to the games as visitors or participants. And then when he's asked about Russian Orthodoxy's views on taking a stance against gay rights or whatever, Putin says, is Russian Orthodoxy's policies on the matter any different than the Holy See? That's kind of funny how he calls the Vatican the Holy See. It seems rather respectful. And he says, what about Islam? They're much tougher on all of this. So basically saying, why are you bothering us about this when there's other countries way more draconian and places like the Vatican have basically the same policy. And he uses Elton John as an example of music that everyone loves in Russia or most people. And he says that no one's discriminating against people in the secular realm on these issues based upon merit and you know what they're participating in, in terms of just basic Olympic events or music events and stuff like that. They just don't want the propaganda. And I would say for even somebody who's gay, is that not unreasonable for a position compared to the other alternatives, especially Nazis who are getting all ramped up on killing their enemies and victory for Thor or Odin or Wotan or Mother Ukraine and saying that LGBT people are probably part of that group, like we talked about with the triangles put on the various enemies of the Nazis in previous segments. So I thought that was interesting to note, but moving on, let's continue with this documentary from Time Magazine, and it even uses footage from MSNBC and shows warnings from U.S. government officials and senators about this very problem. So it's not like this was some unknown thing. In fact, they talk about how fighting Russians in Donbass in particular has become a quote unquote ideal breeding ground for these types of forces. And this is where the Nazis come from around the world to join the fight in Ukraine. I mean, this is specifically being designed to go and fight Russians in Donbass. Do you see how disgusting this is? It's specifically targeting Russian separatists. And so once you break them down, obviously, like John McCain and Lindsey Graham said, this is the time of offense against Putin. And what's also interesting in this video, at the same time, they're trying to downplay the Nazism and be like, well, it's just patriotism and nationalism, right? Which again, is supposedly a horrible and evil thing. If you live in America, you're, you're Nazi if you do that, but it's totally fine if we support them over in Ukraine to go get Russians. Well, There's one guy they interview, this dude from Sweden named Robin, and he admits he's wanted for, quote, hate crimes in Sweden, and apparently to get away from that, he's going to come to Ukraine where there's a great Aryan revival, according to him, and upon arriving to this grand recruiting event in Ukraine, he says that the surrounding is, quote, surreal like something you read about in great Germany in the past. And he's talking about a revival of the 1920s and of the, quote, Indo-European soul. And he says, it's all happening right now here in Ukraine. And he says, we are Aryans and we will rise again. And basically he's saying that after the war, meaning World War Two, they got sidelined, but now is their time to be strong and rise up. And he's, of course, got face tattoos and... He's being interviewed, and everything feels like a great brotherhood to him. He's very ecstatic about it. And the guy who's doing the documentary, towards the end, he says that he got a text from this Robin face-tattooed guy and says that, quote, he's going to the front lines to join the fight, which can only mean that he's going to the front lines in Donbas to fight against the Russians, which is, again, mostly civilians with a few resistance fighters based upon the documentary. But that's just Russian propaganda. Then they go on to show various parades and public events. And all of these neo-Nazi Azov battalion folks are seen as, quote, war heroes. And this one girl is being interviewed. And she's basically summarizing the movement. She says, these guys believe they are saving the future of the West, which is very interesting. And it's probably not the West that they're quite imagining. It's probably more the West of globalist oligarchs that don't have a problem promoting pride parades everywhere else, even if these quote unquote strong Aryan warriors aren't such big fans of them. And then the interviewer kind of eggs the girl on and says, and the white race? And she's like, yeah, yeah, and the white race. Little slight detail. And then the documentary talks about that paramilitary wing that we mentioned, the 12,000 that were recruited after the coup in 2014. And it says that, quote, they've now become a major fighting force for the front line against pro-Russian forces. So they're targeting all these people in the Lwansk and Donetsk area with these Aryan training camps and then Mr. Belitsky is interviewed remember we did a little bio on him previously and this is the guy who said that we must secure the future of the white race against these subhumans but of course a western media article I forget what group maybe it's like Washington Post or something Well, they said, well, he's toned down his Nazi rhetoric. Now he's just a patriot, basically. (laughs) And the documentary shows footage of him conducting this nighttime rally, which looks pretty extensive to me. I think it's all part of this recruitment camp. And it's really creepy. It's got this giant projector screen in the background, like something out of 1984. And then they start this giant pagan bonfire and You know, the stereotypical Nazi Aryan stuff, right? And at the end, there's also one American, I guess, vet or somebody in the military. And he's really trying to whitewash this whole situation. And they ask him if there are neo-Nazis in the army. And he's like, no, not really. I mean, every army, even the American army has some neo-Nazis in it. But it's like, dude. What about the ratio of them and the influence? Obviously, the influence is massive here if they're having this whole giant rally. And this guy is, you know, again, turning logs into specs and be like, eh, not a big deal, right? In fact, this is the narrative that Zelensky's talking about on Fox News recently, where he's asked about the Azov Battalion, and he basically says they are what they are. They're fighting for Ukraine, and he's trying to say that a few of them were jailed, so like the problem isn't very big, but he also admits like all the information, the key information about them coming in after the coup and stuff. Now, interestingly enough, apparently this part of the interview was cut by Fox News. I could not find this on any of their stations, but some other channels posted it, so you can see it. It comes from that specific segment. So, gee, I wonder why they decided to cut that particular part where they asked about the Azov battalion. In fact, I was surprised at Zelensky's answer that he was so candid about a lot of it. So it's interesting that in the documentary, the American who's trying to whitewash this whole thing, well, he's also caught up in like training and working with them, so of course he's going to deny it or downplay it. And then the interviewer asks him, well, what about these rise in neo Nazi crimes in like the United States? Don't you think this is like a threat? Like they could come into the US? And the guy, again, is just kind of like, yeah, maybe it's a threat, but not really a big deal, bruh. Let's move on to another topic. That's kind of the vibe he's given off. And so the movie finishes with Beletsky again giving a speech at this nighttime gathering with the creepy 1984 projector screen behind him. And he says, quote, I am convinced we are ready for battle, ready to be bold and strong, to succeed, because behind us is Ukraine. And of course, the entire Western media and NATO weapons, hardly national success. And he says, we are ready for glory and a, quote, big victory and to bring, quote, death to enemies. And again, who are the enemies in this situation? It's the Russian separatists in those eastern areas of Ukraine, the very ones that Putin says appealed to him because a giant Azov army appeared late in February, and that's why Russia came in to help them, basically to prevent ethnic cleansing and genocide. I mean, how is this defending Ukraine when you have McCain and Graham coming in and saying we're going to go on offense, and then these neo-Nazi rallies, they're saying death to the enemies and it's time for our great victory? Sounds pretty offensive to me. But somehow that's Kremlin propaganda and Russia's the aggressor here. In fact, I think Russia probably secretly infiltrated the United States media to get Time Magazine and The Guardian to make these documentaries. That's how deep the Russian collusion and influence goes. Must be the case. So let's sum all of this up in just these two documentaries that were put out by mainstream establishment institutions that everybody in the liberal West respects and listens to. Basically, the U.S. has been backing a Nazi farming camp that has been preparing for war, and now the time has come for a big victory. And remember, the Time magazine documentary was made in 2021, just one year ago, and it seems like they've really come to the point where they're ready to bring death to their enemies, according to Boletsky, was the mastermind of this whole thing, or one of them. But they're just protecting Ukraine. And so kids are being brainwashed in literal Nazi youth camps 2.0 in Ukraine. But this time, it's the Russian people who are all the quote-unquote Jews in this instance. But this is all Russian Kremlin propaganda and brainwashing. In fact, I am a Russian bot. Freudian slip, sorry. And Putin runs his regime like Stalin or Hitler. Take your pick. Everybody's said one or the other. You know, maybe it's more like Stalin and Hitler combined... Which is really ironic because it seems like the leftist West, which acts more like Stalin and the Bolsheviks and SJW crazies, is combining with a neo new Nazi regime that's more like Hitler, and that's actually the weird admixture that's coming together and attacking a Russian nation that is rising in its Christianity. But it's just a fake Christianity, of course, it's no real threat. They're just in cahoots with the rest of the New World Order, or just an oppressive dictatorship and crazy nationalists, right? Well, you can decide what you think about that. Or is this the personality of demons coming through and they are projecting everything that they are doing themselves through all of these different various factions and people onto Putin and the Russian people? I think that should tell you something. So as I mentioned, this segment might be a little bit longer. We're going to go into some Maidan revolution additionals and then mix it in with some of the things in that Donbass documentary we mentioned at the very beginning. And in honor of Our Lady of Fatima, we have 13 points to present here. The first one, none other than John McCain flew in to give a big speech about democracy in Ukraine right in front of all the protesters who ended up overthrowing the regime and were successful in this coup, if you want to just call it what it is. And you can watch the footage, and I have it in the playlist links. Obviously, Victoria Newland is involved in all of this too, and there's other weird connections to her and the Hunter Biden laptop and Koyla and that's something we might touch upon later. And also the Western media being complicit in this. And of course, later, McCain shows up with Lindsey Graham in 2017 to go on offense, rousing these Ukrainian neo-Nazi troops that have just been training. And the kids have started to grow up, right? Because all these kids in these camps are like, I don't know, 12 to 16 years old, give or take a few more years. They're all going to be 18 to 20 and participating in this grand Aryan rising, or at least so they think. But is NATO just farming them and isolating them from the rest of the world in order to make them their proxy warriors? And like we said, maybe this would turn around on NATO, and if they get a bunch of weapons, they would in turn go back and defy NATO and start wreaking havoc in Europe like the Nazis of old. That's one scenario. There's other people analyzing the war and say that the Ukrainians are losing really badly. I don't know if that's true or not, but if that's the case, then obviously that might be a bit different in the grand scheme of things but we're going to talk about that in the fog of war segment but the point is i i keep stressing this but it's so important going on offense against putin by these two people these two high profile people how is putin the aggressor here is this a just war especially if these forces were coming to genocide these people these rebels so-called in donbass And even if they maybe got some guns from Russia or were a bit rough around the edges and if they captured a Ukrainian soldier, maybe they did some not so good things to him at times. But consider the circumstances. It's mostly civilians there and they have been shelled and attacked for like eight years. And that's the whole point of the documentary. And you can find all kinds of other footage of shelling, especially at night. On, like, BitChute and wherever else. It's all over the place. It's not like this is something that's fake news. It's actually a real thing. And of course, Trump put a monkey wrench in this project, however aware he was, and things got delayed. And of course, is what happened recently, what that was going to be back in 2017 or 2018. Who knows? Point two We talked about the group of Russian protesters who saw this coup going down and then they were trapped in a building and the Nazis burnt them alive and they were smashing fire trucks and not allowing a rescue. We'll talk about the testimony of that at the very end. And there were people jumping out of the window, like in 9-11, not wanting to be burnt alive and rather would fall to their death and the Nazis wouldn't let anyone help them. Again, this is filmed and part of the documentary in a former Ukrainian army nationalist type who defected said he couldn't go along with this kind of behavior and if you watch the interview he's obviously very deeply disturbed by what happened again we're going to go into that a little bit in our final point but hey that is what democracy and quote mostly peaceful protests get for you right point three immediately after this coup there were laws that started to get passed that said no one could speak russian anymore and all these secular facets of life and of course I cannot imagine that U.S. citizens would be cool with that. And if you get upset because an illegal immigrant crashes into your car and doesn't have insurance and can't speak English, well, you're just racist. But we need to support a regime that's banning all languages except Ukrainian so Nazis can all uh, consolidate their power. That's totally fine. Continuing, point four. Talk a little bit about Crimea and what I understand about it. You can do your own research. But I guess what happened, or another take on this situation with Crimea, instead of Putin invading and being you know, some sort of territory grabber and grand despot, well, maybe the Crimea area witnessed this coup going down and said, we don't want to be part of this and have our language stripped down and only Ukrainian and all these sorts of things, and that Russia already had some sort of presence there in the area, or military presence, so they made sure there was no revolution there during their elections, and they had a referendum and elected to be part of Russia and not part of Ukraine. Now, apparently this was all fraudulent, just like Donald Trump being elected the first time, and it was due to far-right Russian influence that Crimea got, quote-unquote, annexed and election tampering and all this stuff, but of course Maidan was a peaceful demonstration of democracy and freedom, in contrast or as demons influencing men to blame others for their own crimes? And in the video playlist, I have commentary from this reporting group called The Duran, which I'll talk about a little bit more in the next segment. Um, this is more their take on it, and I was just looking to corroborate this or that, and it seems perhaps more legitimate to me than the idea of Maidan being a peaceful demonstration of LGBT pride and freedom. And I guess as part of the pro-Russian "quote-unquote" propaganda, these people in Crimea started crossing out swastikas. So they want to cancel the swastika, just like Justin Trudeau claims he wants to do. And in fact, I think Canada's tied to all this neo-Nazi Ukraine stuff. There's a lot of reports about that. That's a whole other topic. But nevertheless, uh, just to speak of hypocrisy, well, these Crimeans claim they don't want a neo-Nazi Ukrainian government telling them what to do and what language to speak and. Lord knows what else comes next, right? Obviously, the whole situation in Donbass is the the alternative that they chose to reject, right? Now, it's really interesting how all of this happened right at the end of February into March in 2014. So it's the exact months later that all this stuff is going on now and going down. And the reason I mentioned that is because in apocalyptic elections, we talked about the strange notion of two periods of three and a half years, so seven years roughly, with a lot of crazy stuff happening and then culminating with Christ's conquering army and all these sorts of things. Well, it's interesting that this all happened within, you know, a seven-year period plus a year, give or take when you want to start all this stuff when things really developed. And also in the apocalypse, it's talking about how the first half is a tribulation, but it's more calm than the second half. The second half's when it goes into kind of craziness and chaos. And so that's what I was trying to relate to, a potential for the Trump presidency being kind of the first three and a half years that was still chaotic, but it was controlled and it was kind of good for Israel, but still a lot of problems. And now we're in the latter part where it's just crazy chaos and everything is bad for quote unquote Israel, right? The new Israel but we're going to be ecumenical and say Israel is old Israel, meaning Jews who believe in the commandments and uh, Eastern Orthodox and Protestants and Catholics who all centralize on the commandments and the essentials, right? Like pro-life or uh, no crazy LGBT propaganda, right? I find the parallels interesting, but it seems like their seven years was a bit before ours. If you want to look at it in that lens. This is stuff we'll discuss more when we go into the members part, and I just kind of muse a little bit on some of these things related to Fatima, but I just figured I'd mention it now. Nevertheless, I think this version of these events makes a little more sense to me than the free demonstration of democracy in the overthrow in 2014. Moving on, point five, Now, what happened, as far as I understand, the Donbass area, these two different republics, they wanted to join Russia like Crimea did, but apparently Russia didn't want that. They didn't want to accept that. And they worked within the Minsk Accords, which were, of course, agreements that the West did not follow, or at least that Putin claimed they didn't follow. But I think all the evidence suggests that maybe he's got a point Now I'm not sure of all the logistics surrounding this. These are just some things I discovered and only went through a limited amount of time on. You can look into it more on your own. Moving on, number six. The analysis from one of those fellows at the Duran was saying that during this time, these Minsk agreements and whatnot, these ceasefires, they weren't followed by Ukraine most likely because USA was not allowing them to. Now, I'm not sure if I'm getting this right exactly. I think that the US was more of a shadow figure in this and that Angela Merkel and Macron were more directly involved in dealing with Ukraine in these agreements. And I guess the whole point is that there was this tug of war going on and the whole point was getting Ukraine to join NATO or talk about it. And the EU and then asking for weapons and missiles. And then there's even the whole nuclear weapons thing. And I guess it's all involved in this agreement. And so this is what was scaring Putin. All these different subtle tactics to get Ukraine armed. Not to mention the whole Nazi farming operation going on. And so meanwhile, Donbass is continually getting shelled daily. And all those citizens are living in terror. So point seven. Point seven. The whole notion of Russia invading recently is that in their mind, again, this is their perspective, you can agree or disagree, they're finishing a war that started in 2014 when the government was unjustly overthrown by NATO, and then all this persecution of Russia just magically starts to happen, and all these people start getting anti-Russian fervor only within eight years, and that wasn't like that before. And so, of course, in the Western narrative, the people of Donbass are never mentioned or they're terrorists, so they deserve it. And most of them are civilians. Again, watch the documentaries. And it's not just that one woman. There's others that are out there, other people testifying to this. Point eight. At the beginning of that Donbass documentary by the French journalist, the president Poroshenko, after he became president after the 2014 coup, well, it shows a clip of him saying some very bold statements. Now, there is a caveat here, but we're just going to read the statements. Apparently, he's speaking of the Russian separatists, and he says, quote, We will have work, not them. We will have pensions, and they will not. We will have benefits for pensioners and children. They will not. Our children will go to school in kindergarten. Their children will stay in the cellars because they can't do anything. That's precisely how we will win this war. Now, I've seen some accusations that this is taken either a bit out of context or a lot out of context. I read somebody said that it was actually from 2015, but they didn't provide any source. Another person mentioned that the context of this was. A mental battle or something, I was really unsure. These are just YouTube comments and people are protesting and saying that this film is propaganda and they're taking out of context this guy's statements right at the start. So obviously if you're doing that in your opening scene, that would be a problem. And I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I haven't really found much about it. Nevertheless, even if that statement is a little biased to get you to side more with the Russian side. It doesn't neglect all the other things in the documentary that it shows. So if there is a, something that is out of context, and I don't mean out of context in a minor way, I'm talking about like a more major way, then obviously that's a problem that should be addressed. But you can look into that more in your own time. I don't have enough time to dig into all this and, and see because I, I, I really couldn't find much on my own. Just wanted to mention that it is disputed and just trying to be objective on the issue. But it seems strange that it would be from 2015 because the creator of the documentary says that they discovered this speech in December 2014, so almost 2015, and that's what made them decide to make the film. So maybe saying it's from 2015 is a half-truth because it's almost 2015? I don't know. So make of it what you will. Let's move on. Point nine. In the documentary you might ask yourself if what happens to these people, or at least what they're testifying has happened to them. Are they part of Nazi tactics? So we know that the Ukrainian army arrives after their recent Nazification, and there's accusations that they were poisoning the water supply. I don't know how bad the poison was or what exactly that entailed, if it was deadly poison or just making them sick. Um... And apparently they were breaking the separatists' cooking ware and threatening to grenade them and using machine guns to humiliate them, making them get on the ground and pointing at them, not killing them just yet, but doing all these threats. And apparently there were neighbors who would denounce the separatists over to these Ukrainian forces because they wanted vodka or you know, basic goods, I guess. Now, if this is true, that's very ironic because... If you watch some of the documentaries, especially the BBC ones, about the people being recruited for the policing who are tied to the Azov, they say, oh, we just want to clean up the streets from drinking and gambling. And they show footage of them going and you know, stopping people from drinking. And they're actually kind of polite about it, a little aggressive, but they're on camera. And then they show a security camera, and I think we've mentioned this, I'm not sure yet, but they show when the cameras aren't rolling or at least the BBC cameras and they get caught on security cameras Well, they storm a whole gambling place and start uh, hitting the gamblers with batons rather than just kicking them out. They're very violent towards them. So they have two different sides of what they show when they know they're on BBC cameras and they perhaps don't know they're on security cameras. So I find it interesting that they claim that they're cleaning up the streets and they're doing good for their communities yet they're going to give somebody vodka for denouncing Russian separatists so they can find them and and beat them up and perhaps do much, much worse things to them? Seems a little hypocritical, and what is the change for the policy? Well, it's just the hate of the Russians, it would seem. Point 10. Also in the documentary, and this is one of the most disturbing things in it, there is a man named Audrey, and he gives his testimony Now, he apparently grew up in Donetsk and he had joined the Ukrainian army in 2013. And he said at this time there was no war and he was serving in Odessa. And this is where that fire happened. And so he said that he couldn't shoot his own people. So he deserted the Ukrainian army because 2014 is really when the war started, right? And that's what Putin is claiming. It's been going on for eight years. Now, many people say it's been going on longer than that. But for all intents and purposes, 2014 is the year. And so this guy is testifying that this is when war broke out and he was pressured to basically start killing the territories that he grew up in. And he's like, I can't do that. I can't kill my own people. And so then he talks about the burning of that building and they're showing footage of civilians watching it all go down. And he's basically doing a play-by-play commentary on it. Again, it's very disturbing, but it's probably pretty important to watch. So he basically said that the building that was burnt was a trade union house. And what happened was there were Russians contesting the ban on the Russian language and were quote-unquote peaceful protesters. We're not saying all the Russians were, but we're saying that this group in particular was because they think they're getting American democracy, because that's what John McCain promised them when they all flew in, right, and made their speech. But the Ukrainian nationalists showed up, and they threatened them, and then the Russians retreated into this building, and they had women with them. And of course, the nationalists proceed to burn them alive. So they set the building on fire, and Andre says, nobody expected this to happen. And the people trying to escape the fire were beaten, they were shot at, they were dragged to the ground. Again, you can see this all in the footage. You can say it's propaganda or out of context, feel free, but it's what's there. And there's people trying to help them, and whenever they tried to help them, the quote-unquote masked people would beat them up. So this is like the Antifa of Europe, but much more hardcore. In fact, the Antifa are a bunch of little hipster wimps, for the most part i mean they do have weapons and they do bad stuff but this is nothing like these crazy neo-nazis it is just a dialectical version but i certainly would rather deal with the antifa people rather than these other guys just my opinion now he theorizes that they were part of the right sector group that we talked about and he said that the police got in between the event and the others and they just kind of let it happen almost like they were given orders for this gee that sounds familiar It's like the footage you see of the police just letting all of the looters during the summer of love just take a bunch of stuff and they literally do nothing. They just stand there. There's so many videos that I remember seeing that look like that. Some might have tried to stop, but there were certain places that they didn't. And so Andre is saying that these orders came from Kiev and no one was arrested, even though 50 people were dead in this. And burning alive and jumping out of the building because they'd rather not be burnt and they'd rather die falling. Um, and you can see footage of some people coming, but it was obviously too late. And like I said, they, you can see pictures of fire trucks broken down. So the Nazis didn't want the fire trucks to get there. They, they murdered these people, but everyone seems to be silent on this incident. So, really think about this. Does this set the tone for quote-unquote peaceful protests when you're just out there protesting because they're banning your language and from speaking it, and you get set on fire in a building? That's pretty hardcore stuff. Moving on to point 11. Apparently, in these raids and shellings in the Donbass area, there are heavy weapons used, so we know that these are probably NATO-backed or given by the United States, and this is admitted by that C-14 neo-Nazi leader Karas, or whatever his name was, that we talked about. He was very candid about NATO giving them all kinds of weapons because they quote, get things done. Point 12. There was a gentleman, we've mentioned him before, Patrick Lancaster. He's apparently been living in Ukraine since the beginning of this war, and you can see all kinds of shelling footage, or, you know, being shelled in this area, and it's not like this guy stumbled onto the scene as is documenting all the craziness going on right now. And he came out of nowhere. He's been doing this for years. You can go back on his videos and see, you know, several years back, all of these things happening. So it's not like he's some plant who's just happened to be there now and never was before. There's a whole history here, as far as I can tell. But some telling footage is that he's basically in like a foxhole with a couple Russian separatist guys. They have a couple machine guns and that's about it. Meanwhile, they're getting the crap shelled out of them. So it's a couple guys in foxholes versus a well-financed NATO army. Gee, who do you think is going to win? Now, did Russia secretly give some of these separatist arms? That's the accusation. But like, honestly, who cares about that if NATO is building a Nazi army there in secret? Well, not so secret, but downplaying it or diverting it or whatever it is right and you can just make the case that they're defending themselves in this situation so even if russia did give them some supplies was that like a a gift or a mercy like i I don't know it's just strange to think about this so in the documentary mentioned by the french lady this question is posited to some of the civilians in the donbass area and then they basically are asked Uh, Russians giving you supplies what's up with the Russian army and they say they're not involved and this is a woman and a husband talking and the uh, one of them says quote if the Russian armies had a war here in a week we would have peace well maybe that's true if the rest of the western world didn't intervene because we've seen that happen recently now If this does occur and they do liberate these territories, despite all the reports saying how the Russian forces have been decimated, if that's not true, then maybe what these people were saying several years back or many years back uh, was true. And then the husband starts blaming Obama and Poroshenko in somewhat colorful but well-deserved language. And the wife tries to tell him not to say that. And he says, I will. And she probably doesn't want him to say that because she's scared. uh, Because when people start speaking out or even helping these separatists or anything, they get hunted down and and killed. And that might be some of the context for some of the strange stuff going on right now or in the last few weeks um, with the idea of Ukrainian troops shooting their own people. Um, Again, we're going to talk about that in the fog of war segment. And then the woman even says that she had high hopes for Poroshenko and that he was democratically elected. Even she bought the propaganda for a bit when it first happened, it seems. But they say that this guy named Turchinov, who apparently is an Azov leader, he's the one who really started the war. I don't know much about him. I couldn't find out too much information. But apparently Russia made a list of war criminals for this whole debacle. And this Turchinov guy is among them. Now, in this war criminals list that Putin made, well, you have the Prime Minister of the Netherlands calling Putin, quote, completely paranoid for making this list. But if that list is true, and there are actually war criminals who are genociding Russian people, well, woe to the Netherlands, or at least the Prime Minister, for saying such a thing. And our final point. There was another journalist, one Eva Bartlett, internationally renowned. If you go to her YouTube channel on her About page, she has a link to her web page, which gives all of her accolades. And she went to the Donbass area, apparently, for three weeks and saw all the same things. And this was somewhat recent, I think. And she confirms, again, this is her opinion, that this is the same playbook that NATO and the West did in Syria against Assad. It's just that They're doing it in Ukraine with neo-Nazis versus using radical Islamic terrorists, but calling them mostly peaceful protesters or moderate Islamic folks uh, in order to try to take out Assad. Now, I know that Trump has been involved in that situation, and we can speculate how much he knows about this or that or what kind of intelligence. I'm not going to get into that because I'm not an expert on this whole thing. But the way she describes the scenario seems eerily similar to a lot of the stuff that seems to be the case here, or at least uh, there's evidence for it. I can't tell you one way or another what's actually real and true, but this is part of the other side of the story. So this is why a lot of people are worried about a possible false flag chemical weapons attack that would be blamed on Putin because they're saying that this happened to Assad. And we, we know that this happens. We had Gaddafi being blamed for the Viagra rape troop fiasco or whatever that wasn't even true but nobody seems to care and oh well we invaded anyways and oh whoops my bad like jack dorsey my bad didn't mean to uh out false information we'll just change our algorithm and we're cool right and so this perhaps relates to the situation what's known now as the buka massacre which just happened recently, and this is what's being presented in the media. Now, it could be true, and it could be Russian troops that did that, or it could be some sort of perhaps fake hoax, or it could be the Azov Battalion coming in and shooting people that maybe helped the Russians and then using them as bodies and blaming it on the Russians, because we see a lot of things happening where the crimes or uh, sins of certain people are being projected onto everybody else and constantly and with such a crazy divide that I wouldn't put it past these groups to do this, whether it's the Nazi battalion or the liberal West elites. I don't know. I don't have the answers to all of this, but I have my suspicions. Maybe you do too. But apparently there's a weird timeline with this Buka massacre. Apparently the mayor confirmed that the Russians were all gone and didn't say anything about it. And then a few days later, all of a sudden, the massacre scene is shown after the Azov Battalion shows up that has been reported to fire on its own citizens throughout this. And you find that in Patrick Lancaster's videos and interviewing people in Mariupol, which is one place that we'll discuss in the Fog of War segment. So that leads us into the next segment. So we're going to leave it at that. I know some of this stuff is very disturbing, but I think it's very important because It shows the blatant hypocrisy of the West, and whether you think Putin is a good guy, bad guy, decent guy, not so decent guy, but not Hitler, whatever in the spectrum, I would think that you would understand the disgusting nature of NATO and the West and its elites, and the foundational pillars of exposing that is the Maidan revolution and the neo-Nazi farming, and then persecution of the people in Donbass.